Father God, we are thankful for who you are, and we are thankful for you on this Mother's Day that um, you are the great creator, and you have given your creation the ability in your image to create life. Um, and we know what a beautiful thing it is for a mother to be able to carry a child and birth that child and love them and develop with them and learn with them as they go through all of the phases of a, a baby who needs everything from their mother to a toddler who needs learning and guidance into young children who need schooling and into older children who need correction and then grown children who want to reciprocate their mother's love. It is such an amazing process that you've given us and we just pray for mothers everywhere today, especially in our church group, but all over the world that they would find their joy in you, Lord, that they would see through what they have made that they would see what you have made and what an amazing miracle it is. And we are just prayerful for peace for all of them. And we just ask that you bless this study, that it may be sweet incense to you, Lord, that it may help us edify each other in the body, and that it helps strengthen us to be good witnesses to you, that it may bring people joy. We ask for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, so quick recap, um, we're in Philippians, we did the first part of chapter one last week, and I think it started out, it was pretty cool. I mean, this is a great book, and we see that Paul's got a lot for us in this. And if I was going to kind of give this a title, it has less to do with what I read out of it, but it'll do with a story that I've got to tell you at the end of this, which is a very uncharacteristic of how I like to study, but I'd say the king has, still has another move. The king still has another move. God bless you. Um, but we started this study out in the book of Philippians by figuring out who Paul was writing his letter to and determined that it's addressed specifically to believers, right? Believers, deacons, and church leaders is who he writes the book to. Bless you again. So this is pretty cool news considering Paul's mission trip there was 10 or 11 years ago and he, a church is growing there. A church that was with Lydia sitting outside the gate at the prayer spot, less than 10 Jews, has grown into a church that needs leadership. They've got deacons who are serving people, the diaconos, the, the table servants. They've got elders, pastors leading a church, and then enough believers that it requires a multitude of leadership. That means the Holy Spirit is at work saving people in the church body, and people are getting saved, and a church is going. We talked about the size of that church. We discussed how God will finish the work that he started, not just in the church, but in all believers, right? God never leaves anything unfinished. So if you're at that point in your life where you're like, I am not sure I can go on because these things in my life are stressing me out. Remember, God's not finished. It's going to be okay. It might not be okay in the temporal, but it's going to be okay. You have eternal peace. That is your joy. So God's not finished. And then we determined that Growing in our love for the Father is built upon really two things, knowledge and discernment, right? And we should strive to know our Father better and do our best to have good theology, good company, and make good decisions. And that's part of our discernment. And we grow in love more and more with Him. And lastly, we're reminded 
of Paul's thankfulness for his friends who are here in the city at Philippi and their partnership with him in the gospel financially and his partnership in sharing the gospel of Christ Jesus. As we know, he's in prison on his own dime. So they are paying for him essentially to survive while he's in jail. So our focus on the joy uh, that is brought to us by this message is partnership with each other here in this church family in the gospel, as I told you last week, and it most certainly is, and Carol and I have talked about this, but we are thankful for you, all of you, and your partnership with us. It brings us joy to have you guys here studying, learning, and fellowshipping with us. Um, so let's jump in, and let's, so this will be the book of Philippians, the letter of Philippians, and we're in the first chapter, and we're going to jump into verse 12, and we're going to read verse 12 through verse 18. So Philippians 1, starting in verse 12, Paul writes this. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. So that rejoice is really the second time that we see joy come up in this letter. And uh, we're going to get into the second portion of this about people teaching the gospel from a different perspective and not of their own. Uh, they're doing it out of their own selfish ambition. But the first part of this is about Paul being in prison. And he's talking about what it is doing to perpetuate the gospel that he's in prison and who he's talking to. So as you know, he is there. He is in Rome. He's never complained about being in prison. The position he considers himself really is a prisoner of Jesus Christ, not a prisoner of Rome, which is funny. He talks about this in Ephesians here, a prisoner of Christ. He doesn't say I'm a prisoner in Rome. They know he's in Rome and they know he's a prisoner. What a perspective to have. Christ has me here, not Rome. Christ could easily set me free. We saw this when we read Acts, right? When Paul went to prison in Philippi, when he first went there, it, he wasn't ready to be in prison and God had the ground shake and the doors open and freedom. So Christ has him there for a reason, right? And he's an, an apostle who exemplifies that joy. This is something that we need to look at in our lives. He's got Paul in an awful position for him. So when we're in an awful position, we need to wrap our heads around, I'm here for a reason. This isn't what I want, but I'm here for a reason. Whatever that reason may be, and we may never get our heads around it here, but trust me, trust Paul, trust God, he's got you there for a reason. So Paul, while he's in prison, this is something that you talk about in Acts, but He's chained to, the, to a guard while he's there. So it talks about this in Acts, how while he's in that Roman prison, he's not just in a cell. He's actually in like an apartment or a flat that he has to pay for, by the way. He has to pay for his own imprisonment, his own food, his own water. But there's a Roman guard there that he is chained to so he can't get away. Um, 
the way Paul looks at it is he's got somebody to minister to the whole time, which is like, talk about the right attitude to have. Like I'm stuck in prison, chained to this guy. Well, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to talk to him about Jesus, right? He has regular visitors coming uh, as well and people that bring him money and people that bring him food and letters and that kind of stuff. So he ministers to everybody, but especially the person sitting with him. So Rome appointed to look after him in verse 13. It says the gospel has become known throughout the whole imperial guard. And that's kind of an important thing to break down. What's the imperial guard? Depending on the version of the Bible that you read, it may say praetorium guard. So if you like the military and you're interested in how that works, this is kind of an important word here because the praetorium guard are the personal troops of the Roman emperor. They are the most highly trained, highly regarded, politically connected troops. They are the best of the best. They are highly respected all throughout Rome. These are the delta force, essentially, of the Roman Empire. They're the absolute heavy hitter, most highly trained. They have the best equipment. Probably, if you think about Roman times, like the best shoes, right, would be a big deal. <laughs> Little things like that. So it's important to understand that they didn't just put Paul in a position where he's just got some regular dude watching over him. They want to make sure Paul's not going to get away. They put the best of the best with him, right? And Paul has taken the opportunity to preach to every one of them that's been chained to him. <laughs> every one of these guys, because they'll take shifts, has been chained to him. And what he's telling us here is the word of Christ is spreading its way through the Praetorium Garden. That's pretty cool. So now the best of the best in the military the well-respected, the most highly paid, they know Christ. This is awesome. They have access to the Roman authorities and they have access to the other troops. So the gospels perpetuated through who Paul is there. So he references here other believers who are imprisoned as well and how it's boosting their confidence and they're becoming more bold to preach Christ. That's the perspective I think that we all kind of need to have, right? If you think you're not in an environment where you're safe sharing the gospel, imagine Paul. <laughs> like Paul is hated. Paul has been to all these cities and what happens to him when he goes there? They beat him up and then they put him in prison or they beat them to where they think he's dead. Yet, still bold to preach Christ. So on those days where you think it might be a little bit dangerous or, you know, maybe your job doesn't want you to do it or maybe this person will be upset if I share the hope of Christ with them because I know it's what they need. Just remember, it's not really all that dangerous compared to what Paul had. Paul was really pulling out all the stops here. They could have just continued to make it worse. And Paul was like, I'm okay with that. Um, for us, the godless world that we live in, uh, will find, you know, 50,000 crafty ways to just make you feel ashamed of sharing the gospel with people. I know it happens to me. Um, and it probably happens to, you know, the most precious of all preachers where they just maybe don't always feel the vigor, right? Um, they'll make you, you know, Satan will make you feel unsafe about it, a million ways to feel unsafe. And the world will lie to you, um, and call you all kinds of names when you do share the truth. It'll, they, they will call you all kinds of names, phobias and, and haters and, and 
you know, you don't believe in equality or you know, whatever that is. You know, you just believe in your ancient book, the spaghetti monster and all this stuff. They will just try to drag you down and treat you awful to try to get you off the path of, it doesn't matter what my situation is. I'm going to share Christ with you because I know it's the truth, right? So as you might know, we need to take some perspective on this, but why the Romans hate Paul. Why do the Romans hate Paul? Because of Jesus, not because of Paul. Jesus was clear about this in John. Jesus said, they are going to hate you because they hate me, right? So they hate you because they hate me. So why does the world still hate believers today? Not because of us. They don't hate you because you're their neighbor and you're a believer. They don't hate you because of what you believe. They hate Jesus. That's what Jesus said would happen. And because they hate him, they will take that out on you. Right? So we had an eventful week. And we're going to talk about this a little bit. I'm sorry that this comes up on Mother's Day, but it's important. We've got to go over it. Unless you've lived in a soundproof box for the last week, you've been hearing about this with the SCOTUS, the Supreme Court, right? They leaked this early vote that wasn't supposed to make it out to the press yet, that the 1973 Roe v. Wade uh, decision on abortion was going to be rolled back. So essentially it kicks it back to state's laws. So the federal courts no longer say it's legal nationwide to have an abortion. States can do whatever they want. Now we can. I'm not going to debate the legalities of that because most of the people that are losing their minds don't understand that it goes back to the states, and you can live in a state where you can vote for legal murder if you'd like, and you can move to a state for legal murder if you'd like. They think that the the world is coming apart, and they will not be able to practice their satanic child uh, sacrifices to Moloch anymore, and so they're losing their minds. So we'll. That's a whole other argument, but what's the real league, real foundation for all this strife, right? Is it Christians against non-Christians or Republicans against Democrats or men against women? I don't, it's none of that stuff. This is all about, it's about Jesus, right? It's about the truth. Um, but I do believe as Christians, we should ask um, if we should ever seek justice from non-believers right because we don't believe that the government is the church so should we seek a just government should we seek justice for people to our left and our right that aren't necessarily believers because that's the case for us why if we're just sharing the gospel is that enough or should we say what you're doing is wrong based on the gospel does that make sense because that is you've heard me say in the past i don't expect people who aren't christians to not want to kill babies. I think we should conversely, absolutely expect people who are not believers to want to do things that are satanic because they're not believers. That's the recipe. So um, I, let's go into the justice part just for a second. In Acts 25 and 26, one of the things we read about Paul is Paul is making his way through the court system and what does he do for himself? He asks for justice. This is how Paul ends up in Rome, right? He's arrested uh, and he stands in front of Governor Festus after visiting with King Agrippa. And, and he, they decide to allow him to be sent to the Roman emperor for trial, which is how he ends up in Rome. Paul is asking for legal justice. Makes perfect sense. And 
by all rights under Rome, he was allowed to do that. So as a, you know, the, the, the most outward speaking believer of his era, Paul is saying, absolutely. If the government is set up that way, you ask for justice. In this case, for himself, which may seem selfish, but no, he doesn't want to die yet. He's got work to do, right? Uh, we see other examples of desiring justice. I mean, the Sermon on the Mount, I believe, gives a bunch of cases where just being just, uh, now, of course, on the basis of being a Christian, but in Matthew chapters five through seven, where the Sermon on the Mount is laid out, it gives a guidebook for living a just life. Um, but we should be able to expect justice for those who can't fight for themselves, I think is really the important part. And in this case, in the case of abortion, the baby cannot fight for themselves. Somebody has to stand in the gap for innocent people who are being killed. Innocent people, notice the word I'm using here is very important. They are people. Matthew says this, uh, or Jesus said this, it's recorded in Matthew 5 as we go through the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Right? So we submit ourselves only to God and fully to God, not to the ways of the world. We know our place here to serve and to love and to call others to repentance in Christ. But blessed are those who cannot stand for themselves. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. We are merciful towards others. Believers, unbelievers, people who transgress us, we are merciful. And we should call for mercy towards those who are not shown mercy. Blessed are the peacemakers, they will be called the children of God. This is about those who bring peace. We bring peace by sharing the gospel and allowing the Holy Spirit to convict others in a way that changes hearts and in a way that allows people to know what's right and wrong. I think the first step in this abortion debate is preaching the gospel. We fail in that as a church. The more people that hear the gospel and are touched by the Holy Spirit and the truth, the more they realize the fault of their ways and they stop doing the satanic things they do. When we waver as families and don't bring our kids up in the Lord, they grow up thinking things are okay that are not okay. It's up to us as parents to lead the next generation to Christ, not to allow them to find whatever filth that they find on their own because they will find it. They will find it on their own. They need direction. It's the way that, that, that we're built, right? We're called to discern. We talked about discernment last week. We talked about it in Ephesians, called to discernment. Um, it's a common thread in the Christian walk. They're supposed to be believers. Um, there are supposed believers who say that murdering children is a women's rights issue. I say for believers, this is not a point of contention. It's, it's not even an argument. If I sit in a room with somebody and they say, I'm a believer and I believe abortion is okay, I would say you should probably check your faith. You should probably go back to the word of God because you don't believe what the whole word says because murder is sinful. As a matter of fact, it's not just sinful as in one of the um, abundance of transgressions you can commit. It is one of the 10 commandments. So it's one of the things that is pointed out by God as something that is um, uh, a, a very bad transgression towards him. It's bad enough of a sin that God hated it before it was even called sin. Think about this for a second. 
Remember when Cain killed Abel? It changed him forever. They had not been told yet not to kill each other. It was almost like God almost didn't figure he would have to. Does that make sense? Like, I made you to all live here with one another, and now sin has made its way into the world, and Cain goes out and crushes his brother. And if you remember right, think of the story in Genesis 4. It tells us that after he killed his brother Abel, the Lord asked Cain, where's your brother? Now, God knew, of course, already. But it was like, it was like as if God comes to him with open hands, like, what did you do? What did you do? Why did you kill what I made for you to enjoy with each other, your partnership, your brotherhood, right? Where's your brother? And his response was, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Like the famous response. And listen to God's response. Listen to God's response to a murder when he says, is it really my fault? Is it really me though? So what he says, what have you done? What have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Think about this. Murder changes a person in such a way that you take away something that you cannot give. So only God can put life into somebody's body. And you decide that you have the ability to take that away. Who are we to make that decision on behalf of the creator of the universe? Now we may procreate, we make life in that way, but it is God who makes it all, right? He's the designer. He's the one who makes the miracle happen. Who are we to decide when another person should perish, especially out of our own selfish anger? And that blood cried out to God from the ground. I can't even imagine what the cries would be, but Father, why has my brother done this to me? Why haven't I been allowed to carry on my life? His blood cried out to God from the ground. The Lord caused Cain with his burden or a constant reminder that it will never get away from his brother's death. You kill a human being, it should constantly burden you. And now I know there's some psychoses and things out there where people are you know, bound to want to hurt and kill people, but that's obviously satanic. It's not what people walking with the Lord should feel, which is why this abortion thing is such a problem because there are definitely people who want to murder. Just purely satanic. Two things we know specifically about killing children. God was clear to Israel to not sacrifice children. He's made it very clear. It started with keeping them away from ungodly sexual practices outside of marriage and then told them not to kill their kids. See, the pagans offered their children to Molech and God called it detestable. So they were offering up their children to a false God and murdering them, infant children, to a false God. And God said, don't do that. That's detestable. And secondly, if you don't know this, if anybody ever says, well, does the Bible really say anything about abortion? Well, absolutely it does. It doesn't use the word because it's not in English, but it does. Check this out. Make a note of it. Exodus 21, verses 22 to 25. I'm going to turn there real quick because I want to read this to you. So turn in, if you would, in your Bible to Exodus, go to chapter 21. And in 21, go to verses 22 to 25. 
And listen to what it says here. We'll actually start, I'll start uh, Exodus 21, 22. says, when men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined as the woman's husband shall impose on him and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, and stripe for stripe. This is about two men fighting and then accidentally hurting a woman and making her child abort prematurely. So surely if you accidentally make a child come out who dies and you should be paid back eye for eye, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, stripe for stripe, surely then it must be worse to do it on purpose because God is clear here, it is bad to kill a child unborn in the womb and you will pay with your life for doing it, which we do not do. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> awesome. Congratulations. Thank you very much. <laughs> so, <laughs> that is amazing. I love you, Riley. Um, and no life, life does not begin at first breath. It's not a thing. I mean, everybody in here just knows, at least this one of us knows way more, but the rest of us know a little bit about medicine. Life doesn't begin at first breath. That is one of the most ridiculous anyway, life does not begin at first breath. Biologically, it doesn't make any sense. Biblically, we'll talk about that. Psalm 139 says, God knitted, knitted me in the womb. He's building us in there. Jeremiah 1.5, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. You were a person inside the womb before you came out of the womb. You were a life, alive, a person with a spirit, with a soul, with a developing body that is alive. Cells have to be alive to replicate. If they are not alive, they don't. That's it's science 101, right? You can learn that in elementary school. Can I say something? But, yes, ma'am. I like the way we count our age. Because when I first came to America, people asked me, how old are you? I'm like, are you talking about which, um, which way of counting? Which way of counting? Because in Taiwan, we count that nine months in Montini. So when we first born, we were one year old. Oh, <laughs> yes. I like that. Yeah. So yeah. I think that's the reason why... Lots of people here in America didn't count that life and thought it's okay to abort them because it doesn't count. They are not an age yet. That makes a lot of sense. We should start doing that. The day you come out, you are that many days, right? Yeah. So it makes sense. But we learn a couple things uh, from what's happening here. And one is that uh, justice will not come from an ungodly world. Um, and we should expect that. And, but to the contrary, we should expect injustice from an ungodly world. And we're going to have to fight for that justice. And those who are not saved should not be expected to know the truth. And we should share that truth with them. But this means we have to share the truth um, and we have to share Christ um, so that we can save babies. 
So the other thing we learn is that it's all right to stand up for the truth, right? In the face of being called names or all kinds of false things um, that are being said about the church or us as Christians, it just doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what people say about us. They're just going to keep doing it, doing it, and there's nothing we can do. Um, Paul knew that this is, was going to be like this. Uh, he was dealing with the same junk back then. Paul was dealing with uh, how bad it was. And think about, we studied Ephesus. We studied the Ephesians and how it went there. Uh, can you imagine what it was like to preach there? Um, he probably wanted to go fix every single social issue that was out there that presented itself. And you think about all the horrible stuff that was going on in Ephesus with like child sex, child rape, child trading, drug abuse, paganism, worship of worse God, uh, worship of false gods. <coughs> He's dealing with all of this. The best way for him to deal with it is preach Christ because you can't just attack every little social issue and expect people to change. So in the following four verses, which we want to get to here before we get to this story is in verses 15 to 18, Paul explains that there are some selfish ambitions to some people preaching or teaching the gospel, uh, but that people can still be saved from that, that the gospel is still going out. And many of those people took personal attacks against Paul and used his imprisonment as a way to leverage their case. But Paul's still thankful that the gospel of Jesus Christ is being proclaimed, right? It needs to be made clear here that Paul doesn't say that they are preaching a false gospel, yet their motivations were selfish. There is a difference, right? God saves people out of some really unhealthy church situations uh, and environments. And for that, we should rejoice, right? So... I want to shift gears. I typically, when I study, I don't like commentary. I, it, it almost has gotten to the point, bless you, where it bores me to hear somebody tell, like if you told me a college football story at the beginning uh, of a Bible study to try to correlate how that story relates, I, I have turned you off right from the get-go. College football and basketball have nothing to do with the church, and I could care less. You can keep it to yourself. Open the Word of God. Teach me out of the Word of God. Teach me what it means, a little bit of the original language. Show me how it applies to my life and let me go out and share that joy with others. And now I'm breaking my rule because I have a story. And um, I typically don't like commentary, but and we need to be able to engage with the culture, right? So that's why we're talking about women's rights issues and the abortion issue. And it's important. One of the other things... Um, as I don't like just regular stories that don't seem to mat match. But earlier this week, I was reading and this story popped up and it was like, and I'm sure this has happened to you guys at some point, like you read something and it just matches kind of what's going on in your faith walk for the week. And you're like, oh my gosh, that just means something to me. So I just wanted to share it with you. So um, I'm going to share this story called Checkmate with you. And I got to read it right out of here. So if I don't look up at you, I apologize. But I just want to read this. Because it really matches to what Paul is talking about here when he's talking about being in prison, his situation not being just right, but he's still rejoicing because he knows God has got more to do. So if you will, just pay close attention for the next couple of minutes and listen to this, right? This story may be urban legend. There's truth to some of it, but if it laid out exactly this way, I'm not sure but it's definitely applicable to what we have going on. Fa hanging in the famous Louvre Museum in Paris. It is an early 19th century painting 
by a guy named Friedrich Reich. And it was originally named, I'm going to might mess this up, but just bear with me. It's called Die Schockenspieler or the chess player, right? It has been nicknamed Checkmate by the art world. Um, and it depicts a man playing chess against Satan. So if you look at the picture, Satan is on the left. There's a man on the right and there's a chessboard between them and in the background, a painting with an angel on it. Satan sits there poised. He's got his fingers on his, uh, on his chin, like he's rubbing his chin and he's looking like he's won and he's waiting for the man to concede. And the man sitting, staring down at the board has got his head in one of his hands and it's rested there looking at the board like he's out of moves, like he's given up. And the table appears to have many more of Satan's players on the board than he has lost. So as, as you know, in chess, you'll set the, 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 the pieces off from the board. So you can see that Satan has won most of the moves. And while giving a tour in the Louvre many years ago, a tour guide uh, was walking these people through and he stopped a tour in front of this amazing painting and he told the group there that it depicted a man in his loss, having wrestled against the great master deceiver. And they moved on. But one guy stayed behind and just stood and stared at the picture. The tour went on and the tour guide became concerned of where this guy was. And eventually at some point tells the tour to wait and he goes back and he finds the man just staring at the picture. And when he asked him, he said, what's wrong? Why are you still here? The tour has moved on. The man replied to the guide that he says, you've mislabeled the picture. You, you, you incorrectly point out what's going on in the picture. And the guide, he became kind of defenseless in his staunch franchness. He says, you know, I, I, you know I've been tour guiding here for years. I know exactly, I know all about all of this art. Of course, it's exactly what it is. He told him about his knowledge of the Louvre and the art that's there and his mixture of French and English that's now angry. And the man calmly replied that he's not an art connoisseur, actually, that he is a grandmaster chess player. And the picture does not depict the man's loss. He said, to the contrary, this former chess champion he explained that if the board is examined correctly, the king has one more move. The king has one more move. See, Paul knew the king had one more move. His situation in prison was not going to stop the gospel from going into the world. He doesn't just share with people who bring him food and water and letters. He shares with the Praetorium Guard. It's probably very intimidating. He's just Paul. He's sharing with this, you know, amazing young warrior. He knew the gospel had to be proclaimed. Paul knew that false motivation from those preaching the gospel was not going to stop the gospel from going out. He rejoiced in Jesus that the gospel was going out. The world was going to be reached for the gospel of Jesus Christ because the king had one more move. No matter what the situation that we're in, the king always has one more move. In times of social uprising like this past week, where we think that we're losing the fight because 
socially the world has come unglued and people yell names at each other and call each other all kinds of things and and the outright practice of evil is overwhelming we need to know the king has one more move we need to live faithfully knowing that he is not done working in you he's not done working in you or you or you he's not done working in your kids he's not done working in your spouse he's not done working in your neighbors he's the king And he has one more move. And in that, we should find joy. Father God, we are thankful for who you are and we are thankful for you completing what you have started. We're thankful for this study. And we're thankful for the timeliness of uplifting stories. We are thankful that no matter where we are in our life or in our walk or in our circumstances, that you've always got one more move. You are the king and you are a faithful king and you are in command, you are sovereign and you are in charge. And no matter what we go through here, no matter the toils or tears, you still have one more move. You always will. You will bring us through anything that we can possibly imagine faithfully, safely. We are thankful for that, Lord. We are thankful today, Lord, for our moms, those present and those who are not with us. We are thankful for new life. We are thankful for that amazing miracle that brings so much joy when a mother delivers beautiful babies, those miracles that are just sweet and, 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 and so tender. and It's hard for us to understand, Lord, how anyone could want to hurt these children, but we know, Lord, that if they do, that you take them to you, that they are safe in your presence. And I thank you for our church group and our church family who gathers around weekly to worship you, God, that you may strengthen us to be good witnesses to our community. Thankful that you would be active in everyone that is here to love one another and serve one another so our neighbors might see the way that we love one another and ask why so that we may say, we have the joy of the Father living in our hearts. And we ask for all of our blessings in the name of our precious and holy Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.